Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the fellowship that we have in Christ. We pray that once again, your Holy Spirit would be with us to encourage us, to challenge us, to enlighten your word for us. And as we look at another snippet from the life of Christ this morning, we pray that you would uh, draw our hearts closer to him, that we would love him more, that we would prize him above all other distractions that He would be our goal, our means, our first thought. How can we please Him? Our aim is to be pleasing to Him. That be the, the, the neutral setting of our hearts would be, I want to look like Jesus. It's not natural for us, and so we know that that's a supernatural work that you do day by day, minute by minute, through the means of grace, and one of them is the study of your Word and the fellowship of the saints. And so we pray that you move us closer to that this morning. As is your goal, we want to be obedient and compliant and rejoice in seeing it done in us. We love you and we pray that we would love you more. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we are, uh, like I said earlier, going through some some snippets. We, we've, we've been in the Old Testament for... Um, what six years and so nice that was well done yeah didn't didn't distract at all um so uh we've been in the old testament for six years and so we're, we're taking a little break this summer uh to to talk uh through just some some pieces some snippets of the life of christ the teachings of christ and last week we we went through the narrative of the canaanite woman remember that we, we talked about um, her uh, experience there and, and, and needing the, the, the healing of her daughter. This week, uh, I wanted to take a, a parable. And I, I've, I've taught through this one a couple of times. And it's, it's one of my favorites. Um, it's Luke uh, 16, verse 1. Luke 16, verse 1. Let me just read it for you. <clears throat> he also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And we'll stop there. 
This is one of my favorites because it's just so bizarre that the guy gets commended at the end. Isn't that odd? Why would he, this guy get praised at the end? It's just weird. Um, in fact, um, well, let me ask you. Just I know that we're we're coming off of a budget meeting from last week, and that's probably all. What do you think the core issue is in this parable? Just just off of a, a, a quick reading of it, what do you think the core issue is here? Mercy. Mercy. Okay, one one vote for mercy. What would you think? What's that? Resourcefulness, theft. You know, it's interesting you say that. There, there was a, in the fourth century. There was a guy named Julian the Apostate. Guess what he was? Um, and he argued that Christianity, that Jesus was actually encouraging his disciples toward theft, toward dishonesty, and that's why Christianity should be, you know, marginalized and and, and shunned out. And he pointed to to this parable as a reason for that. Is that what the parable is talking about? Is that what Jesus is trying to get across here? Has anybody heard this taught on before? Some of you have. You around? Is it faithfulness in the little things? Faithfulness in the little things. Like in verse ten. <laughs> that nine through thirteen is actually a separate section. Oh, okay. It's not part of this. That's a very interesting discussion among <laughs> scholars. But yeah, nine through thirteen is a is actually not part of this. M many preachers avoid this parable like the plague. You can imagine why. Oh my gosh, Jesus is commending this guy. What's going on? Um, it's disturbing to see the noble master commend him. Um, in the 4th century, by the 4th century, monks had put a chapter division. What's right above this parable? The prodigal son. They had put a chapter division between the prodigal son and this parable. But many, looking back, wonder if that was a good idea. Many think that this is, in fact, an addendum to... The parable of the prodigal son, a more of a, a more explanatory parable, by linking the, the this parable of the unjust steward, they're, they're very similar. The two parables each has a noble master who demonstrates extraordinary grace to a wayward underling, the son and the prodigal son. And here you see grace with the with the steward. Both contain a loser son or a steward who wastes the master's resources. We see that going on. Each one of them has a moment of truth when it all comes to a head. I will rise up and go back to my father and be a servant. Both parables deal with broken trust and the problems resulting from it. There's, a, there's kind of a sense that the common understanding of this parable may have been different if that chapter break had not been there. It, that, it, that it's more of a, in the vein of the prodigal son. You've got the, the same kind of idea. God, sin, grace, and salvation. It's not dealing with honesty and money, which is where many people go. It's not dealing with that. Um, just, just the literary structure of it, there are seven stanzas in this parable. We've talked about Hebrew literature and how that's set up, the kind of the chiastic structure. And the one in the very middle is, is, uh, is when the manager figures out how to proceed with the crisis. And so what I'd like to do is to kind of go through this parable and... and, and when we're doing biblical uh, interpretation, we're, we're trying to understand Scripture, we go to what did the original audience 
here? Where would they be coming from? What, how would they have taken this? And so let, let's, let's go at it from that standpoint. Uh, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So a rich man has a steward, and a lot of times people hire money managers to handle their affairs, right? If he's a landowner, which this guy obviously was, then you've got tenants, and you've got to handle who's doing what. Are they doing their quotas? You know, am I getting the most value out of my property? So you hire a manager to do that, and it's a position of trust. But somebody rats him out for wasting the rich man's goods. Who brought the charges? Somebody who maybe was concerned about the, this master being taken advantage of. If the master, well, what does that tell you about the master first? That somebody would report this to him. He's well respected. Uh, they'd probably, you know, consider him, you know, a one percenter if they didn't, and it would be okay to rob from him if he were a jerk, right? But he's he's respected. He's a nobleman. He he has a lot of uh, a a lot of um, you know. There's a tight knit community going on here, and so he's respected. Um, it doesn't say, but we know that's told by someone that the nobleman considered reliable. Because he doesn't say that he does any other investigation. Right, it doesn't, and I was thinking that maybe it was then a group of people that brought a set of charges because. Because you have more witnesses out of two witnesses. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It could have been two or three witnesses. The thing is established. Maybe he didn't need to do further investigation under the law mm -hmm. that was at the time. That's a good point. Well, what we have here is the community's opinion of the nobleman being expressed in the charges that are brought forth. Um, the, he's very well respected, um, and, and that's kind of the undercurrent of the parable. The players. Who are the players? We know the, new, the nobleman. Who, what do we know? Who else is there? The manager. The manager. Kind of an important character, because, you know. And we know he's dishonest, because that's the heading at the top of your Bible. He's dishonest. Well, who, else is the, who else is a player? The debtors. The debtors that are involved. Is there another? Is there another? Four. Yeah. Is there another? Um, my finger won't do that thing. Um, is there another player here that that's that's that we know of? Remember the characters in the last pair, uh, the last story we did. The brother. The community that's watching, right? In the parable, the community is you know stage shadow, I don't know what you call that, where they're just not there, but they're there, right? The community is involved in this as well, in the parable. Uh, and we'll see why in a minute. We have the steward, good, by, good guy, bad guy. Is he a good guy or a bad guy, the steward? He's bad. We would say bad, bitter bite, bad, here. He's a liar, right? He's a, he's a cheat. Uh, the nobleman, good guy, bad guy. We have no hint that he's dishonest. Everybody's he, bad. He's probably wicked himself because he's like, oh, wow, well played. He recognizes the wickedness, I would say. That's his name. So only, so only bad guys can recognize shrewdness. No, but he was, he, he recognized it and he commended him for it. It doesn't say that Christ commended him for his dishonesty. 
it says that the master in this commended him for his dishonesty. Was it his dishonesty that he commended him for? His shrewdness. His shrewdness. His shrewdness in screwing him. That's what <laughs> he committed fraud against him. Okay. So, so we are. Uh, Eric is a little dubious on the moral status of the nobleman. Anybody else want to take up that, that cause? We know that wealthiness is next to godliness. <laughs> <laughs> wealthiness is next to godliness. He had to be. <laughs> but you keep saying that uh, he's a nobleman, but it just calls him a rich man. Am I? Am I? Well, uh, I, he's rich, he has land that's generally okay. going to be. But when you call him a nobleman in today's society, that just means. Well, he's not. He's not Prince Charles. You're right. I, I don't. I don't think he's Prince Charles. But I mean, the he's a well-to-do guy. Okay. Um, and in the and in the communities that they had then, the well-to-do guys kind of were the. He's a tax collector. I don't think he's a tax collector. <laughs> well, one thing that's interesting is none of these debtors were in jail. Right. Which does say something about this man. Because he could have, if he had all these people that were debtors mm -hmm. in their society, they could have become his slaves or they could have been in prison. Mm -hmm. um, and it, anyway, there's no indication that that's where they are. And what is his chief uh, means of money here? Is this a, what kind of community are we looking at based on, based on this? Agriculture. Agriculture, farming, right? So that's why I don't think tax collector. Um, I well, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of putting on of someone's motives here. We're just given this story. Okay. I've always just heard these parables, and you assume that the the rich man is some kind of noble, moral, high, righteous guy. But like, why do we assume that? Well, let's talk. Let's look through the rest of the. Let's look through the. Let's look through the rest of the parable and see how that might play out. Because culturally, I think the argument can be made that he was a good guy. Oh, okay. I got it. All right. So after being told of the steward's dishonest, I never read Lemis, so I don't know. I don't get that. Okay. I'm so sorry. Was it wasn't the one where um, Wolverine was singing, was it? No, okay. Yeah, it was. <laughs> right, after being told of the steward's dishonesty, the master summons him into a little get together. He says this, and he called him in and said to him, "What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager." Do you think the master is seeking information here? No. No. And in fact, in the Middle East, whenever there's confrontation like this, this is a, this is a um, classic opening for these kinds of circumstances. A at this point, the steward doesn't know what the master knows. Um, if he panics on hearing this question, then he's going to give a, up a great deal of new information. But, but what does the manager do here? Does he say anything in response? I mean, you, you think about it. When you're getting charged with, you're a liar, you've been stealing from me, what would be some of the natural responses? Refute. 
to refute it, right? I mean, he might say something like, Beloved Master, I have served you. My father served your father. My grandfather served your grandfather. Surely you're not going to trash a three-generational relationship, you know, on some, some rumors over a little misunderstanding over money. We've got history here, Bubba, right? Or he might say, it's not my fault. I've done my best, but I don't have, you know, eyes everywhere, and these people just won't pay. They're a bunch of lazy people, and they're not going to pay. They're thieves. Or he might respond, bring in the people who have charged me, and let's confront them. Does he do any of that? Recognizes it's like well crud, I've caught, I need to find a way out. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. We in a tight spot, right? Gigs up, gotta Yeah, and that's exactly what go that's exactly <laughs> go on the lamb. He didn't do any of the he hadn't done any, any of the, the normal excuses that we would think somebody would do there. Or at least it's not recorded in the parable. Um, he knows that these maneuvers are not gonna work. The master already knows what's going on. He has no evidence to the contrary to, to present. Um, and he's busted. And his silence in, in the Middle East, their culture, the silence is an admission of guilt. There's no pleading the fifth here. None of that. The silence is an admission of guilt. And it's also a testimony that the master cannot be manipulated or pressured by any kind of shenanigans. I mean, the guy, is, he knows his stuff. So in, in Middle Eastern culture, that silence is unheard of. Before leaving the room, people usually will plead to be reinstated. I'll turn over a new leaf. Don't fire me. This will ruin me. Um, but um, isn't that what we do as well? I mean, from Adam onward, we're, it's not my fault. It's Eve's fault. It's Snake's fault. It's Tammy's fault. Don't we all do that? I mean, and so, but we don't see that here. The master is not impressed. He doesn't say, balance the books and get them to me. He says, turn them in. Um, he fires the guy on the spot. He could have imprisoned him. Right? We talked a little bit about that. He could have imprisoned him. Uh, this kind of theft would have, have ruined the guy. Um, is this an act of mercy toward the manager by not by just keeping it between them basically turn the books in he doesn't sell the steward's family into slavery to recoup his losses remember we talked about some of that in Leviticus how debt issues were handled there he had every right to do that he's a generous man here in his response to the steward, which is why it lends me to the idea that he's not a rogue, that he is more of a... All right. He does not tell... He, he, he doesn't... Uh, he just simply dismisses him. He's generous, and he, let, and he, and he refrains from those heavy punishments. He just wants the, the steward gone on the spot. Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the issue that may not be um, readily apparent in the parable. There's, a, there's a, a situation called agency here. The steward represents the master. And the authority for his, when he speaks, it's as if the master is speaking. The, ma the, the steward is the agent, the master is the principal. We, we call that an agency law. And in, in this time period, 
the, the authority that the steward has is based on his possession of the books. Right? He's got the books. And the master just told him, turn them in. What happens when he turns them in? He's no longer the agent. He no longer speaks with the authority of the master. The master said, turn, turn them in, which effectively ends the relationship of, of agent and, and principal. But nobody else knows it. Right? So you have uh, this idea of agency law in the Middle East. The appointment and powers of the agent may be revoked at any time with or without good cause. They were at-will employees. And whatever the agent does after a vacation is not binding on the principal. It takes effect, however, only from the time that it is brought home to the agent or the person with whom he is dealing. So if nobody knows about it, he can still act with the authority of the master and it's still considered Binding. From the moment he's fired, everything he does is without authority. Everything he does. And therefore, it wouldn't be binding on the master if everybody knew about it. He's been ordered to turn in the books. The books represent his authority. He's no longer steward, but he's still got the books, so he's desperate, right? He's thinking through, what are my options? You ever get in those situations? What are my options? What could I do? The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. That's a good assessment. Uh, sometimes it's good to take a, a, a valuable, a, a, an accurate, realistic account of what your skill sets are. I would not be strong enough to dig. He realizes he's not strong enough to dig. And then what else does he say? I'm too ashamed to beg. Well, you got two criteria to beg in Middle Eastern culture at this time. It's not, it's not like our culture. Uh, you have to be lame or blind. And lame not as in, gosh, well, he's so lame. I mean, you can't walk. That's what I mean by lame. So he's, he's got to be lame or blind. He realizes that he can't do that. And to do anything else, he'd be ridiculed. To, Why are you begging? You got two feet? What's wrong with you? So his shame is, I can't go through that again, you know. I can't do that. Um, he, make, he takes a realistic appraisal of who he is. Does that remind you of a certain other character, say chapter 15, who takes a realistic appraisal of where he is? And that's, this is kind of where the link a lot of people are seeing in between those two parables. The, the, the prodigal in the pig pen can't digest the pods and he says, I'm, I, I, I'm going to go to my father. I'll be a hired servant. I got nothing to offer. I've sinned you know, as high as heaven or whatever. And this is the same kind of idea. He, he has an epiphany. I can't do any of this. What am I going to do? And then the light comes on. The light comes on. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. What's his goal here? Self-preservation. Self-preservation is always a good goal, especially when you're driving. <laughs> He's, buying He's buying friends. He's hoping to get another management job, right? Maybe a little lower down on the social ladder, but... Maybe they'll, if I do them a favor, scratch their back, maybe they'll get me a job here, whatever. 
he's looking to it, the, the receive me into their houses is an idiom that, that basically means to get another job. He wants to manage somebody's estate, but how? How's he going to do it? He's turning his master's debtors into his own. Ah. He's turning his master's debtors into his own. Anything he does with the estate is, is without authority or is Ill illegal. Uh, but the rest of the staff is not yet aware that he's been fired. He's still got the books, but he says, give them to me, right? That's going to change. He's got to act fast. He's thinking to himself, I'm not the only crook in town, <laughs> right? Meaning the master. <laughs> no, he's not talking about the master. master's been generous and, 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 and good. I stick to it. If I'm fired simply for corruption, nobody's going to hire me. I have to do something that will demonstrate my shrewdness and at the same time make me popular. So he's got to do fraud with friends. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, well, when I, I, when I read it, I didn't, I was assuming that he, you know how like when you're in debt and you call and you call to like pay it off, and they're like, you have to pay all this money, and then you talk them down, and then they'll be like, okay, you can only pay half that much. When I assumed that that's what he had done, just been like, okay, well, maybe these people had had this debt for years, and they hadn't been paying, so he's like, okay, you can't pay the whole thing, just pay half, and then he turned it into the master, because it doesn't say that he kept it. Ah, that's interesting. The, the idea behind what he's about to do is a scheme where the difference between the two amounts, 100 pay 80, 100 pay 50, the idea is that they're splitting the profit from the difference. It's a scheme that they're doing. That's, what's the, that's the undercurrent here. Um, no, in fact, he's saying, he's saying write down on the books 50 when you owe 100, <coughs> And the, and the implication is, culturally, I'll take 25, you take 25, we put 50 on him so that you get a reduced deal, I get a little money out of the deal. I have authority to do this, but I need to be compensated for my generosity toward you. That, that's, that's, what, that's the, culturally, that's the idea going on here. So nothing's being paid at the moment. It's just saying, hey, you owed 100, we're gonna put down. We, help me help you help me. Is basically what, what's going on. So summoning the master's debtors one by one. Why would you do one by one? Why not call them all together in a big group? Doesn't want a big audience. Doesn't want a big audience. Why? What would happen? Master the master would find out possibly. He also wants to get the most he can. He wants to get the most he can from each one, and it's much better to focus your attention on one person than 50 people. They wouldn't want to do it in a big crowd anyway. They don't want to do it in a big crowd. Everybody would... Because dishonesty right. would be perk kept like this is secret. Yes. Instead of hey, we're all dishonest. So and that's a and that also is a cultural thing. Um, he he summons the debtors to him. What are they thinking when they come in? Uh -oh. It's not harvest time, right? There's not there's not given accounting yet. We haven't had the harvest come in yet. There's no indication anyway in the parable. Why would it, why, what would they be thinking? Probably thinking they're going to go into servitude. Probably thinking, uh-oh. He's coming to collect. He's coming to collect. They're going to go into servitude. So they're already kind of, this guy's the known authority for, for the master. 
They're coming in as the master servants. They think that the, 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 the steward's still in charge. And he brings them in under that facade that he's still in authority. And he summons them one by one because of he wants to maintain control over the conversation. It's difficult with it. Well, did the master do that? You know, you got this kind of thing. You're having to... But doing one-on-one, -on -one, he has control over them. The debtors think that the master has an important message for them, collection or it's time to pay up or whatever. And that's exactly what the steward wants them to think. He can tailor the private interviews toward that each individual person so he can get the most out of them that he can. And he wants them, he has them write it down in their handwriting. Well, how would he do that? So his handwriting is on the books, it's off record. He hadn't touched it. This is what they're doing, right? They are a party to the scheme by their own handwriting. He has them write it down. Uh, in effect, what he's doing is saying to the debtors, quickly before my master uh, gets wind of this, write 50 instead of 100. As for the extra 50, that will be divided between the two of us when all of this is over. That's the cultural implication here of what he's doing. He makes the debtors partners in his embezzlement. So why would he do that? If they're in on it, What's not going to happen to him? They're not going to tell him. <laughs> They're not going to tell him. They're not going to report it. And this is a key cultural element here. This is an honor and shame culture, right? We have an honor and shame culture. And what we know is going on in private, we have public deniability. I didn't know that he was doing this. Politicians, they call it plausible deniability. Um, I, what, we know, what we know is going on in private I can, I can always say, he never told me that the master had fired him. I assumed he was acting with the authority of the master. And so they had this little scheme worked out where um, everybody's a winner, sort of, except for the master. Um, it works this way. The debtor can maintain personal honor by claiming that he had no idea the steward was fired. Without that kind of cover, and this is another reason why he does it one-on-one, -on -one, without that kind of cover, the guy's not going to go for it. Because somebody else can say, oh, no, no, no. I didn't do this deal, but you did, and I watched you write it down. So then there's this dishonor that, or shame that would come upon the debtor. But doing it one-on-one, -on -one, they maintain the honor to the public. Um, privately, the debtor can accept the deal that will enrich both the steward and himself. And with each scam, the debtor is surrendering the possibility of going to the master and telling him what has happened. The steward knows exactly what he's doing. He's got to act fast. And these are huge reductions. I mean, half, right? That's, that's a big reduction. 80, 20% off is a lesser reduction, but it's, it's huge. Half wages for a farm worker. All right. So then he gets this deal done, and he takes the books to the master. Imagine the look on his face. Because what, what's the master going to do? He gives the master the books. What's, what are the master's options as he sees what's happened by reading the books? What could he do? Oh, I'm 
He could bring it out publicly, but what would be going on in the community at this point? Maybe a huge scandal. Maybe a huge scandal. Master would lose respect in the community because he's obviously a foolish master who got, you know, so tricked if you bring him into the light. There could be that. He, it makes him look foolish for not having dealt with that a little differently. Another issue is that when you get a good deal, Okay, every time Tammy goes shopping, and she takes the girls, especially, she's looking at me. So every time the girls go shopping, they, they, they tell me, don't you think this is nice? That's really not what they're after. They also want the added compliment of way to bargain shop, right? I only, this was, a, this was priced at $80, and it was only $50. I saved you $30. You know, that kind of thing. So when you get a good deal... More like 12. 12? 12? 12? What? That is a great deal. <laughs> I thought it was a better deal than that. Anyway, so there is a tendency that we have, if we get a good deal, to go tell everybody. What does that, in this culture, when, the, when a debtor says, hey, I owed the master 100, and they cut it to 50, what happens with that? The master looks good, good. He looks generous, right? He looks kind, compassionate, generous. Does that honor him or dishonor him in the community? That honors him. And so at this point, you've got all these debtors coming out of the room. You can believe this. I got this deal. And, and there's like this undercurrent of, wow, this guy's. Quick, go to the master. You know, this guy's really generous. He's being honored by this. There, there might even start to be a little party going on and celebration over the generosity of the master. Culturally, happiness leads to the killing of some animal and everybody gets to eat in this culture. It, did we see this in chapter 15? This is the idea. There's a feast or a festive kind of attitude in the community. What happens if he goes and says, no, 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 no. I go kill the party. <laughs> right? If he goes out there and says, this guy was acting without my authority, you still owe a hundred. Bu Buzzkill. They don't care whose fault it is, they just know they're not getting the deal. Right. They don't care whose fault it is, they just know they're not getting the deal. He looks less honorable as a generous man. Right? He could go immediately and, and, and tell them that, but then he stops the party and his image, his reputation that was already in place as a generous man gets diminished. The party would turn into a gripe session and, and of course he's selfish and unfair. He's a one percenter that never gives us anything. All right. So he opts for the second choice. What's the second choice? Leave it be. Laugh it off. To be wronged. It's better to be wronged in this situation and to maintain the, the reputation of generosity. He stays silent and pays the price for this guy's skin being saved and continues to enjoy his reputation as a generous man. The little ruse by the steward enhances that reputation by, apparently by quite a bit. 
the nobleman is a generous man. And we saw that earlier in how he dealt with the guy. And that's the point. What's the point? What does the whole ruse rest upon? The whole thing rests upon. Mercy. Well, it's kind of, it is mercy, but it's kind of love and, and respect over money. On whose part? The character of the nobleman. Yeah. The character of the nobleman. The whole thing rests upon, I know he'll respond this way because I know the character of the nobleman. And he's a generous man. He has a reputation for that, and he doesn't want to do anything to damage that. That's what the whole thing rests on. Uh, but eventually, since the steward was fired, won't the master have to get a new steward, and eventually people find out that the other steward was fired, and his whole thing's a hoax? Well, I think the issue here is that he's not fired. I mean, this whole, I mean, because of that. I think he ultimately saves his job through this little ruse. I think that's the implication of the parable. What is the assessment here of Christ? How does Jesus characterize this guy? Verse 8. How does he, how does he conclude it? What is, how does he characterize it? He says, sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation. And sons of light, he's saying he is of the world he's not commending him for the dishonesty here he's rightly characterizing him as a son of the world right although he's condemned for his actions what he's praised for is his confidence in the master's gracious nature this is a fraud but it is a most ingenious fraud. This is, the steward's a rascal, but he's a wonderfully clever rascal. The steward was smart enough to know that his only hope is to put his entire trust on the unqualified mercy and generosity of this master. His morals are deplorable. There's no getting around that. It's awful. Nonetheless, Jesus wants the sons of light to use their intelligence, like the dishonest steward, and trust completely in the nature and character of God. How much more should we trust the character of God and act in a risky manner based on the nature of who God is? Um, we didn't read verse 9, but I think 8 and 9 have to go together. Because I see 8, this is real sar 8 and 9 is just real sarcastic in the master being like, um, just telling the, the dishonest manager that the sons of the world are more shrewd than the sons of life. And then in verse 9 he says, if that's what you want to do, go make friends for yourselves by unrighteousness. So, that it, so when that fails, they can receive you into their eternal dwelling. Basically, hey, if you want to work by unrighteousness, go do it, make friends for yourselves, and then at the end of it all, you're going to go into eternity with them, which would be hell. Maybe. And some have argued that 9 goes with it. And that's why you see the break in the ESV puts 9 with 8. A lot of scholars would say that 9 through 13 are separate. They're not. It, it, they actually are more aligned. They're, they're their own unit. Um, I tend to take that view. But um, I, I think the parable actually ends on the assessment of sons of light, sons of the world, and, and the, the trust and the nature and the character of God by the sons of light. 
Um, a few points to take away here. The sin here is exposed and condemned, right? I mean, we see that. The master's nature will not tolerate excuses and the steward doesn't offer any. He is condemned as a son of this world for his lies and deception. The other thing is, sin begets sin. He, what should he have done at this point with the master? Immediately when he's confronted with this. Fessed up. Fessed up. Repented. I've cheated you. Not dance around, try to find out schemes to get out of it. He should have confessed it. So that, that comes out too. But the issue is he's commended for his right perception of the master's nature. Not only does he correctly perceive the master's nature by what the master has revealed previously, the steward courageously acts on it in a way that involves huge risks to him. And the, and the implication in Jesus' statement is how much more should God's children courageously act on our Father's nature? And that's faith, isn't it? Acting based on what we believe to be true about the character of God and, who, and, and His nature. Do we understand the nature of our Father? This is eternal life, to know God and the one whom He has sent, Jesus Christ. That's the nature of God. That is, and in response to understanding His nature, we're to act on it. How do you apply this? What does this look like? What does this look like? What are some examples that because God is one way, we should act contrary to what would be natural? Yeah. When people will approach you in the Walmart parking lot and ask for money. Okay. You, you need to give them money anyway because your brain and your human nature says don't do it, they're just frauds. But it's between them and God what they do with the money. So there's a, there's a generosity because God is generous who so want to be generous. God has given, so we need to give as well. Okay. Any, any, any others? Any other examples? of How would we act in a risky way? I think, you know, Paul says we boldly approach the throne of grace. You know, our natural inclination would be to run away and hide. Mm-hmm. And we know his character as being loving even though we're not loving that we can we can confide in that and rest in that yeah and because of his forgiving nature um, that also allows us the uh, bold action of asking his forgiveness which is a matter of faith, trusting in who he is, that he will forgive, because the word says it. The other side to that is, how should we emulate that? How do we reflect that? I should be forgiving because he's forgiven me. Who, who, who is more generous, who's more worshipful and thankful, but the one who's been forgiven much versus the one who's been forgiven little? Um, that's risky. Forgiving people can be very risky. Why is it risky? You can get taken again, and most likely you will get taken again. Isn't it better to suffer wrong? 
Now, there's wisdom involved in that. You've you got to temper that with wisdom, certainly. But, but the natural response for the Christian should be, I want reconciliation. I want forgiveness to happen. Not, they hurt me and I'll never let that happen again. And that's, it's risk. Any, any other examples? Nature of God should be reflected in us, and it's risky to do so. I think there are certain types of people that the church or Christians, we as Christians, kind of avoid because, you know, well, what if, what if somebody saw me with this type of person? You know, that doesn't look good, and so we, we just judge and we avoid them. But I think when we're, you know, before we're saved, we're all in darkness, and the mm-hmm. Lord called us out of that and into His light, and it's and, and then we struggle with being compassionate towards other people and showing them his light. And um, if we just were to actually humble ourselves and reach out to those people and see their lives change mm-hmm. because of, you know, Jesus loved prostitutes and mm-hmm. he didn't judge them. And um, so it, ta- it talks about shrewdness and, uh, where is it, in dealing with their own kind. Mm-hmm. You know, like, who we know who we were before the Lord saved us. And if we turn around and act in love to those people that the same thing could happen to them and so I think that's trusting the Lord's character that he will he can use you to change people's lives instead of just well I don't want to look like I you know I'm hanging out with all these gay people or you know just random things you know if God if if we know God to be sovereign if we believe that it is God who changes hearts uh, we talk about that a lot around here that it's you know you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps to get to Christ he changes the heart why then would we ever oh that guy will never change why would we do that that's not trusting in the nature of who God is this guy's tatted up and smokes I can't go to him because he's just hardened anyway. We can apparently can tell that they're hardened because, you know, the outward appearance, because that's the way that works. Right? If God is sovereign and we trust that to be true, does that put anybody off limits on who we share the gospel with? No. It depends on God who changes hearts, not our perceptions of their socioeconomic reality, not our um, awesomely awesome uh, ability to speak their lingo and be relevant to their culture. That doesn't work, by the way. Tried that, done that. Didn't even get a t-shirt. Because I booted. Anyway, it just... But we should be praying for people who... Gosh, that looks really... That's a tough nut there. There are a lot of scars going on there I can't fix that but I know one who can if we really believe God is sovereign that should radically cause us to do some risky evangelism yep okay it is now 1015 if we believe that God created time we should radically try to get to church on time alright so let's, let's pray Father, it's very easy, and the comfort of this environment, even though it is a little warm, 
to talk about being risky based upon who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. It's another thing to boldly do it outside these walls. And we can't do it. We're fearful, we're judgmental, we're angry, we feel slighted. Of all those things going on in our own hearts, all that crud is there. But you are conforming us into the image of Jesus. And he never saw someone that he wasn't willing to challenge on their sin and to, to present to them the gospel. I pray that you would make us that way, that we would be bold in our proclamation of um, be reconciled to God through Christ. That we wouldn't be so caught up in being cutesy with it and trying to be cool and hip, but that we would just demonstrate the love that we have for people created in your image, regardless of what they look like on the outside. Would you make us a people that love what you love? It's not necessarily trees. You love people more than trees. It's not necessarily uh, comfort. You love people more than comfort. Would you give us hearts that gravitate toward the love of people over our own comfort and cause us to take risks based on your nature, knowing who you are, that you're a God who is gracious and grants mercy to whom you will. We pray that you would again grant mercy to us as we repent of our own biases and our own fears. And they would be wholly given over to making much of you and your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.